Hello and welcome to The Course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Associate Professor Leah Feldman from the Department of Comparative Literature and the College. Her research focuses on the formation and collapse of the Soviet Empire and political subjectivity and representations of sexuality, gender, and race in the Caucasus in Central Asia. Her book titled On the Threshold of Eurasia, Orientalism, and Revolutionary Aesthetics in the Caucasus won the Central Eurasian Studies Society Book Prize. Professor Feldman is here to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. So, Leah, can you start by giving me a general overview of your career path? So, from your time as an undergraduate all the way to becoming a professor at the University of Chicago. I actually started out wanting to go to art school. I was a kind of a failed art student, and I desperately wanted to get into Cooper Union and had a very rough critique with one of their representatives. And at that time, I also still wanted to take other subjects. I really wanted to learn languages. And so I ended up at the University of Texas. I was at that time, I had just moved to Texas. So I was in state and I was a very affordable and great program. And the university had a lot of opportunities to study languages and study abroad and study the humanities. And so I kind of started out on this path and I I encountered wonderful professors at school and they really inspired me to be interested in literature and specifically comparative literature. They were a couple who were both the heads of the comparative literature program and Slavic program at the University of Texas. And I just was so inspired by their work, both their political commitment to their work, the kind of creative possibilities of their work. They also let me still continue to produce art. So I made a bunch of performance art pieces. I made some very large paintings and I got to learn languages. So I started out with French. I studied at Sorbonne in Paris. I was able to study Russian. All of this being very affordable because it turns out that not many students at the University of Texas that time wanted to study abroad. So it was sort of a situation where if you applied, you could, you could, you could do it. So I spent summers studying in Moscow. I studied Italy, Corsica. I really took advantage of those opportunities. And or I grew up in a household that was not academic at all. My dad never went to college, came to the U.S. to run hotels from Jamaica. And so I, he was really proud that my sister and I were going to college. And um, it was really novel, I think, this whole academic world and the idea that you could get paid to, to study literature, to study languages, to travel. And I had some encounters with Soviet art when I was a kid earlier. For whatever reasons, I was raised in the Bay Area in Oakland, California. And for whatever reason, my parents were adamant they didn't want me to watch TV, but they had, they would get videos from the store. And one of the videos that they got, which I became obsessed with was Soviet multifilm. It was, they were cartoons of Soviet, uh, like Soviet fairy tales, basically. And the cartoons were amazing, incredible animation and artistry. And the stories were really magical, you know, so like flying horses and wishes and like, yeah, they were just really imaginative and visually striking with, you know, all done to classical music. And 
I was just completely taken with them. So when I was in college, I started attending some seminars on on Russian literature, on fairy tales, on on Russian theater and art and popular culture. And I was so inspired. I wanted to keep studying. And particularly, I was really lucky because I had these two incredible professors who really like took so much time and mentored me and, you know, exposed me to critical theory, post-colonial studies, to feminist critique, to queer theory, to post-structuralist theory. And I just thought this was such an incredibly playful and imaginative world. And they taught in such a wonderfully unpretentious way as a kind of, you know, I remember I sat to get into one of my professors, Elizabeth Richmond Garza's class. I at this time, in order to enroll in classes, you had to like physically go and queue up. And so I sat overnight, actually. I camped out to try to get into this course. And she was teaching this course on decadence then and now. And it was like Baudelaire to Nine Inch Nails. And so I was just, I thought it was so cool. And it was like all this angst I was going through that really resonated with the work. Yeah. So I, I took a lot of courses with these two professors in particular. And they encouraged me to apply to grad school. And I I got into UCLA. And then when I got into UCLA, I wanted to write on the Russian Empire. I wanted to do something on minorities in the Russian Empire and specifically something on Islam. This was after 9-11. And I started taking Arabic, which I was absolutely fascinated with. And, I mean, it's an incredible language, but I didn't have enough time to continue with my studies because I had to be teaching at the same time. And I, you know, I had no Arabic at that point. And so I was sort of struggling to keep up with the Arabic and teaching and all this. And then I decided I was going to learn a Turkic language because I was working with an advisor at UIC, who is a Tatar historian. And so I thought I might write on Muslim Tatars in the Russian Empire. And, but by, by chance, we had a professor who was doing a Fulbright from from Baku, from Azerbaijan. And he was, uh, his, he's a historian, and but was, you know, asked to teach his language class. And his pedagogy was really inventive because he had no book, no dictionaries. And he just took this very famous early 20th century periodical, which is also like a cartoon called Mola Masvetin. And, and it's based on this like folk figure, this kind of idiot savant who's like reveals this kind of, you know, civic critique through his sort of own stupidity. Anyway, that's, this is this folk character. This, there's a lot of folk stories about him. And this is also the name of this journal. So I started learning Azari and then got a Fulbright to go live in Baku and study Azari. So I started, so I wrote this book on the, on um, Muslim communism and the formation of the Soviet Union. A lot of the kind of theoretical interest for me was in thinking through the problem of the ways in which multiculturalism was used by liberal states, which definitely has an analog in the U.S. And I was interested in thinking about how the Soviet project built itself on this idea of multinationalism while it was still an expanding empire. So the kind of ambivalence between its own imperial project 
and this kind of ideology of multinationalism and anti-racism. So I wrote this book about Azari poetry and Muslim communism and the formation of this Soviet empire in the Caucasus. And, and now I'm writing a book on the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, somewhere in between there, I started researching the rise of the global new right, couldn't get away from it, taught two courses on, on fascism, and kind of formulated this project thinking about how the right grew out in part of the collapse in the Soviet Union, the kind of failure of the left after, after 68, and, and wanted to know about other trajectories, like other artist, artistic experiments, primarily in the Caucasus and Central Asia that are less studied and think about how these artistic experiments were formulating visions of subjectivity in this transitional period. So I work mostly in the Caucasus and Central Asia. And now my work is kind of, I mean, I work on issues of nationalism, ethno-nationalism, race and ethnicity and gender and sexuality in the former Soviet empire. And now I'm kind of doing more work on visual art, performance art, and and starting to do some collaboration, creative collaborations with artists, which I'm happy to talk about if you want later. <laughs> and you've been doing this since you've been at the University of Chicago? Yeah. So my first book came out a couple years after I got here. Between col- between grad school and starting at UChicago, I had two postdocs and I was living in Hungary for a year. I was at the CEU, the Institute for Advanced Studies in Budapest. And then I came here. My first book came out. I just got tenure last year. And so now I'm on leave on a Humboldt fellowship, supposedly in Berlin, based mostly in Berlin, but I happen to be in Chicago at the moment. But I am um, writing this second book. So Leia, what did you think you were going to be when you were a kid? I don't, you know, when I was a kid, I remember I, I wanted to be like, I wanted to be like an inventor. I think I had some book about Leonardo da Vinci and I was like, I want to invent things. I remember reading also one of these like books about astrology and I'm a Scorpio and it said like, if you're a Scorpio, you should be a butcher or a secret agent. And I remember thinking, well, I'd rather be the secret agent <laughs> than a butcher. But I don't know why those were the available choices. But yeah, so I kind of liked the sort of inventor aspect. I liked the idea that I could constantly learn. I was just such a, I was a really curious kid. And I think a lot of my t- attraction to this job is that it's constantly different. I mean, I'm constantly working on a new project. I'm reinventing my method. I'm Re, I'm learning new languages now. I'm learning Georgian. I, I mean, I'm just it, there's so much possibility for for constantly learning new things, and I so I I love that about it. So I guess that's the the kind of through line. And what were you like as a student in your middle high school and even your undergrad years? I was a terrible student. I really I really wanted to go to art school when I was in high school and. At the end of high school, I moved from the Bay Area to Texas and I hated it. I went to the school that was like basically like Friday Night Lights, that show. And it was like, you know, football team, like all that whole vibe. And I just would like, I just left all my classes and just would paint and just listen to music on my headphones and paint. So I, I did not like school. In fact, when I went back, when I went to do a PhD in comparative literature, I went back 
to some high school thing and met one of my English teachers. And she was like completely shocked because I always got bad grades in English. So I was not really much a school person. I really liked math though, but I found school really difficult. When I got to grad school, I, when I was an undergrad and I found these professors, I really like, I just love, I mean, I would, would follow them around everywhere. I didn't find many other students that, I mean, I didn't have many friends, sort of a weird kid. So yeah, I mean, but I, but I, I, I loved learning new things, but I found the format of the education that I received. I mean, it was all great education. I'm like public school educated and I got, I did like, I, I learned, I had so many opportunities, you know, but I, I kind of hated the social aspects of it. Yeah. And so when you get to grad school, I know grad school is a grueling process for many. Who did you lean on for support during that time? I had a wonderful, wonderful friend who was in my, who I made friendships that I kind of made in, in grad school who with someone who was in my cohort, who is now a colleague in my department at UChicago, amazingly. And she was really like a major support system. And I think I mean, I had great advisors too in grad school, but, and just, I mean, I, I've met a lot of inspiring people along the way. I mean, I always found people who are willing to take extra time to mentor me and work with me, but, and, and I was, I'm just been ongoingly grateful for that. I mean, all across, I mean, I had an advisor at, U, at USC, the Tatar historian, Aisha Rorlik, who I mentioned, my advisor, Amir Mufti, other faculty there is not the school quarters who's now at Columbia and Anandita Banerjee who's at Cornell but still also took so much time to work with me and advise me and my professors at from college Elizabeth Richmond Garza and Tom Garza also yeah I had a lot of people help me you know people who I met in at conferences in the field Bruce Grant NYU who's an anthropologist was really helpful all the friends who who I studied with in, in Baku, who were fellow researchers. I had a lot of luck with people reading my work and helping me with resources and supporting me. Yeah. And how could I pretend to, to have mastered something well to get a job? But I guess I got lucky. What would you say was the most challenging part of the whole PhD experience? I loved grad school. I, it's funny because I I often speak to grad students at, at Chicago and they they always seem like they hate it. But I also know that in Chicago has this kind of adage, like where fun goes to die. So <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was just an affect or what, but <laughs> I went to UCLA and I like was on the beach and I was reading all these things, but it was great. I mean, I had a wonderful grad school experience. You know, getting a job was really stressful, obviously, in finishing the dissertation. But I just, I mean, I, I thought, Grad school gave so much opportunity to learn. It required a lot of self-direction. School always required a lot of self-direction for me. I never, I always felt like I had to fight for everything and like, you know, constantly being applying for fellowships and things like that. But I think that you have to do that to be able to do this job. So I was lucky that I learned how to do that early. Like just already in undergrad was always applying for fellowships and things like that. So by the time I got to grad school, it was very normal for me. So I guess, you know, that part was just a, an extension of, of just a very self-motivated 
desire to to learn new things and go places and and travel and stuff like that. And yeah, the, the hardest thing, I think the hardest thing is getting a job. And why become a professor? You know, why not do something else with this experience that you have? I think that that decision, I don't I don't know that I like sat down and was like, I'm going to become a professor. I think I the moment when I applied to grad school was 2006 and or I guess 2005 and was before the economic crash the economic crash happened while I was in grad school I don't know that I would have done it if it was after 2000 I, I don't know if I would have felt like it was possible but at the at that time I thought oh people are gonna pay me to to learn things and read things that sounds pretty great even though we actually didn't I mean my starting salary stipend that at UCLA was $16,000 a year. So it definitely wasn't enough money. We had to have many jobs, <laughs> but as I'm sure grad students do now, now, depending on where they are, but, but yeah, I never just sort of decided it just kind of, it just sort of happened where I, you know, I, I entered into grad school. And then once I was there, I kept, you know, I finished the dissertation and then I applied for jobs and I didn't get one immediately, but I got these postdocs. I was at Princeton for a year and then I was at in Budapest, which was really an amazing moment to be in Budapest. And and so I, you know, of course I, I took that opportunity because that was incredible. And then I got this job at UChicago. So I got really lucky in having constant employment. I mean, it's just not the reality of the moment we live in now. And I don't know if I would have, how I would have done it differently if it, had, things had worked out. But the, but there's a significant amount of luck in shaping my career. So what would you say is the most fun parts of being a professor? Well, I love teaching and working with students and learning about and learning from my colleagues and students about their interests and their own projects. It's like you get this chance to learn all these all these things that have nothing to do with what you do. And that's what I love about comparative literature as well is because it's not so field specific. So even though I work on the former Soviet Union, I love to read about Arabic literature and, you know, like contemporary performance art and value and critical theory and Marxist aesthetics. Like it, it, it offers the opportunity to like learn so many things from different people, learn about their lives, learn about their dreams, their desires, all these things. And recently I started doing collaborations with artists and I am really, really enjoying that. My new book is on performance and, and installation art in the 80s and 90s. So I got been interviewing a lot of artists about their work in the 80s. And then also I'm doing these collaborations with artists. So I just am finishing up a children's book with a artist collective based in Berlin called Slavs and Tatars. And we wanted to write a book that not only for children, but that was kind of available at all ages, that was kind of simple in its narrative, but about the script reforms in the former Soviet empire and, and about the ways in which that shaped how we understand sound and its attachment to written forms. So we wrote this children's book, which is also like a sound book. It has a sound dimension. And that was really amazing because I got to co-teach with them and like learn a whole new form of writing and and think about the relationship between text and image and sound and producing this kind of 
work that's like between scholarly work and the and an art project. And now I'm working on a grant to do a project on costume that's also working with the history of costume and like contemporary artists that make wearable art. So I'm really enjoying this is one of the new kind of directions in my work that I'm really enjoying, which is spending a lot of time talking to artists and learning about their work and also making collaborative projects. What advice would you have for someone who was interested in pursuing a PhD in comparative literature or pursuing a job as a humanities professor? I mean, I think it's really, really difficult now to get a job. I don't think that I would say categorically don't do it, but if there's something else that you can do, you might want to investigate doing that. I wish I could say something different, but like the pragmatist side of me says that. But I also think that a humanities education is really, and and a PhD in comparative literature can be really helpful for a lot of other professions that are kind of in cultural foundation. You learn how to apply for grants. You learn how to give public talks. You learn how to write articles. You learn how to present, curate material. There's a lot of jobs now, especially in art, in research for art. And so I I don't think that, I think that my advice, I guess, would be for students to really consider if, if this would be worthwhile for them, even if they didn't get a job. I think my answer would have been yes, because I, I wanted to (laughs) spend years reading really weird books and learning languages that are less common. And I think if that's you, then this profession is right for you. But yeah, I mean, I think that it would be hard to, to ignore the fact that we're, that we're in a, entering into a major depression series of world wars and, and the defunding of academia and humanities in particular. So, I mean, I'm not blind to that, <laughs> but I, th- I still, I still think that the kind of a critical humanist approach that that a humanities and a complete PhD can offer and the chance to learn languages and ex- and really learn about people, places and things that are that are new and different to you and to understand your your relationship critically to others and understand and 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 formulate you know humanist ethics i think those qualities are civic qualities and that they're important for any society so i have a pragmatist capitalist answer and i have your your socialist humanist answer there so briefly what is the most fulfilling part of the work that you do I mean, I think I probably already answered this, but like really, you know, the teaching, working, collaborating with students, with colleagues and working now with artists, collaborative, I would say collaborative work and collaborative research are becoming the most enriching part of this profession for me increasingly. Thank you, Professor Leah Feldman, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more and thanks for listening.